Losing Interest is a Horrible Histories, Terrible Mysteries podcast. The past, and unfortunately the present, is often a bleak place. Listener discretion is advised. If you're a fan of disturbing interests, please, for the love of God and all that is holy, like and subscribe. Your comments and your shares, it only feeds our weird and makes us stronger and stranger. Remember, without liking and sharing us, we won't survive. We need you. We need you to tell a friend, tell your priest a confession, tell your parole officer, tell your favorite luchador, uh, your favorite conspiracy theorist, go on CNN, whisper in Wolf Blitzer's ear, whatever it takes, man. Just get us out there because, you know, without you, there is no us. Because with us, you might be disturbed, but you're not alone. Welcome back to Disturbing Interest, everyone. I am Regina King, your evil queen, and sitting next to me is my ever-beautiful partner. Hi, I'm Lynn, your docent of darkness. How you doing? I'm here. I've, I've written a giant, like a tome, like the Oxford English Dictionary. Girl, I've got a story for you. Oh, you have a story for me. Okay. For you and our listeners. Excellent. You remember the throwaway comment I made about being like an airplane traffic controller and how bitches would die if I had to Sure, yeah. We had that whole thing in the last episode. Yeah. 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 So we made an investment, we being Mr. Mao, and I got just kind of thrown in that mix, which is cool because it's fun, but he made an investment of Beat Saber on- Of what now? Beat Saber. It Beat is Saber. It is okay. Game. I was like, I don't know what that is. It is a virtual reality game. Okay. Remember the last time we recorded, you walked out. Oh, he's played golf, like fake golf, and there's a giant Max Headroom looking thing on his face. No, he was hopping around. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Sleeping and... Leaping and Oh, yes, he had the, the like, the poles. The yeah. waving his arms. He was playing Beat Saber. Okay. We have graduated to far higher levels than that one, which means it's a lot faster. Is it like, it's sort of like Dance Dance Revolution, also the funky chicken, but you're also like trying to swipe it dots and shit that are coming at you Basically, with the lightsabers? It, yes, you have lightsabers, so it's virtual reality. You so you're have, a disco Jedi? Kind of. You cool. have like, I mean, I personally believe that this game was invented for that one Jedi who just wanted to dance. I'm picturing Darth Maul in like a, like the suit from uh, uh, Staying Saturday Alive, Saturday Night, Night Fever, Fever like yes. John Travolta suit. And, but in, you know, do, 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 do. Yeah. I, I want to see that. Yeah. I, you know, Ryan Johnson, maybe that could be your next Star Wars film. That could be. Yeah. That could be. So anyhow. This game has proved to me that should I have to wave something for eight hours in a day, yes, bitches would die because I have been playing this game and chopping blocks with lightsabers and virtual reality set to music and I'm in it and I'm lunging and my body's like, bitch, you haven't lunged in years. What are you doing right now? So that when they say that playing video games is like super unhealthy, get off the couch, this proves that's a lie. It's a complete and total lie. But this also proves that were I a traffic controller, bitches would, in fact, die. Yes, they would die. Because you can't keep that up for like, nope. I don't know, however many hours straight you have to just be like, boop, 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 back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that would not happen. So we now have proof 
that yes, at least I and know thyself, right? Know, know thyself. So I will not be applying for that job anytime soon. Not yet. I mean, yet. you're just you're just starting out. Like, you know, maybe six weeks down the road, you'll have built up those muscles. You'll be ready to conduct some planes. Maybe, maybe. See, the goal is building up my... Um, Aerobic activity levels? Yes, aerobic activity. Cardiovascular system. Yes, yeah, words. Cardio, do more cardio and build up the ability to walk more, which I have been doing with the dog as well, and uh, take on Japan in May. Nice. Yes. Nice. Yes, so that's that's the big plan. But anyhow, Beat Saber. You were we, here. You witnessed it. It was a throwaway comment. I just had to follow you're up like, with yes, it. like, yes, I'm good at this. Well, you, you could have come with us on Sunday as we drove a U-Haul to Yelm, Washington. Beautiful, scenic Yelm, Washington, where you have to drive through Roy, which looks <laughs> like a post-apocalyptic western ghost town. It so really that's does. cool. And you get to drive past the Ramtha estate. So, okay, we got to cover Ramtha and Jay-Z Knight, local homegrown cult freaky channeling woo woo oh, oh yeah Ramtha. shit they got money man there's a that's a big ass compound but like right down the road from it is like the buddhist temple and it's super cute and i'm like let's go there like that seemed nice but yeah we were uh we've been cleaning out the house and getting ready for this great remodel and we took some old furniture and shelves that our friends could totally use down to their their place in yelm and that was quite an adventure. It was the bouncy castle cars. We're like, boinga, 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 down I-5. It was good times. I like how you call it the great remodel. Like, we are going to remember this as a point in the, the time era. Like Yes, there we was, are. Like, yes. I sure am. In my personal timeline, this fucker looms large. <laughs> Before the great remodel. Oh, God. After the great remodel. Well, I mean, you basically have to marry Kondo your whole fucking life, right? Yes. You yes. have to move while also living in the rubble of your home. So I feel like this is totally preparing me for like a second Trump presidency when everything goes totally post-apocalyptic. I'm ready, guys. I'm ready. See, you go to such a better place than I do because I was I automatically think it prepares me for death. That way oh, Mr. That too. Mao doesn't well, have to do it with as much I mean, shit. don't they say that uh, like home remodeling and moving and things like that are like some of the top 10 most traumatic life experiences? Yeah. Which seems crazy, but then you start doing it and you're like, oh, no. They've invaded my lair. I've invited them to come in and invade my lair and fuck it up in the hopes that eventually it'll be nicer than it was when you started. And then, like, stuff like picking shit out for your bathroom is weird. Because most people buy a house and they're like, that's a bathroom it came with. I guess I pee here. And they don't think real hard about it. I got to think about shit I never think about, like tile. I don't think about tile ever i grew up in a construction family i think about tile like i actively think about tile okay. i'm weird i, I like tile we think about like rabies and vomit and um you know cows in my family because i grew up in a veterinary household the natural so thing, it's a little different yeah. yeah no i i'm very pleased i i you know we've been going to all these very interesting there's the remodeling district. I shit you not. In in Seattle, in South Seattle, there's this whole little cluster in South Park that's just like stone and tiles and wood and shit to build houses with. And we've been going through all of them, but like literally blocks from where you like you live um, is the Seattle Tile Company. And if you would like some quality tile, they did not pay me to say this. You should totally go there. They have. Um, they have crazy mutant animals, like face sculptures 
kind of just sort of situated, made out of rock around the building. Yeah. There's one that's called Harold, and I'm assuming it's like for Harold Bluetooth because we're in Ballard. But I was like, I think it's No Luck Harold or that, that sad guy named Harold that's a meme. That's No, uh, it's, it's Kill the Pain Harold. Yes, I have the no one idea. that just sits there like, uh, you know, I'm very sad. But it's fascinating, and like the interior is interesting. And it was the first place we went to, but then we were like, oh, no, we got to go look at a whole bunch more. But I swear, I imprinted like a baby goose on like the first tile I saw. It always happens that oh, way. And none of the others were good. I was like, ah, fuck this tile. Fuck that tile. Fuck, oh, Jesus, that's expensive. Really fuck that tile. <laughs> but we've, we've settled on it, and I think we found tile. Is that the one you sent me the picture of? Yes. Yay! Yes. It's I a, like that color. Kind of a chill, like blue, and then some of the wall, the other tile will be white, so it's not like blue. It's like blue and white. But then, oh, then comes the secret little pop of color. What? With the pencil tile, like the the, the pencil molding, I which is the like little the skinny molding. part. And I'm moving my hands like you can see me, uh, but like a little skinny tile that kind of goes around the border, and that's orange. Nice. Nice. Just to throw people off. I like decor where people go. What happened here? <laughs> So yeah, that's that's what I'm going for. Anyway, that was my exciting adventure. That uh, is exciting. Yeah, that's I am really middle aged, is what I'm trying to tell you here. Really, really, really middle aged. Well, this weekend we got out of the house and took the dog for a walk. And, that's good. Uh, that's excellent. We went over to um, the. Did you get vitamin D with yes, a little bit of yes, sun? There was yeah. tons of sun. Uh, we went over to the botanical gardens. Oh, nice. Yeah, we walked them over there, and then we decided we're going to go down to the Salmon Ladder. To anyone oh. who has not been to Seattle. It's neat. It's really cool. The locks are where they raise the water up so the boat can come up into our little port here. And uh, the Salmon Ladder is where you can see the salmon swimming back and forth. It's pretty cool. It's under construction. It, it, it's like everything in Seattle. It's under construction. Yeah. 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 But, I mean, hey, at least they keep it up. However, I discovered that Rocky will never be a dog who wants to go on a boat. Because oh. crossing those bridges, we went over them the first time and he wasn't happy. But we thought, eh, he'll be okay. He'll get used to it. He'll start walking like a normal dog. No. 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 That did He's not, not a water dog. He's not a water dog. He no. is in no way. Yeah. I'm with him. I get nauseous on a ferry. So... He didn't like yeah. it. He was very scared. So we will not be taking him back to that area. Won't again. be kayaking with your dog. No, 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 no kayaking for him. It's a, it's a sad day. But anyhow, yeah, that was our adventure. So mine just it was a U-Haul and Ramtha. That yeah. Hey, that's 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 middle aged adventures. Hey, what that is. Any time a cult is involved, I know. that can be an adventure. Well, this is today's story is not a cult. It is not a cult. But yet. um yes. No, it's no, it's not a cult. It's uh it is a manhunt and it is sordid and it is murderful. It's fucking bizarre. And I went to our box of terrifying wine that we're still working through from Christmas, uh, for today's because I try to find something that has to do with this particular I, I this is a stretch. But this one, um this one's called Pop and Fizz Sparkling House. Oh, that's Sparkling House. But I picked it because it's called White Bubbles. And the story I'm going to tell you guys is some peak white people shit. This is some white, it's so white. This is white people doing white people things in the whitest of possible white ways. So White Bubbles, this for you. So I'm going to pop this one open. Oh, yeah. Ooh, that's, it's, it's, it smells like high society. 
Let's try this. It smells like like a good game of Baccarat at the Casino Royale. It's you know this is good actually. Really? Yeah, it's not bad. White bubbles, you not so bad. Let me try. I know. I mean, it's not like I'm not trying to trick you either. I swear to God, you're not you're not convinced. It kind of smells like bread, which is again a white bread kind of thing. Yeah. See, it's not terrible. Actually, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. I would yeah. ten of ten would I would genuinely recommend Pop and Fizz Sparkling House White Bubbles. I think that might be the first one you have actually yeah. recommended. Yeah, no, this one's actually like two thumbs up. This is pretty good. Hey, all right. I, well, I think my story is pretty good too, but again, it is, it is peak peak white people shit. So on this one, Lynn did the heavy lifting, and on the next one, I am going to do it. So we're just kind of trading off this time because we do what we want. Yep. Yes. You had stuff to do. I didn't or i didn't care i was like this seems more fun i'm gonna do that instead of being an adult so that's on the, on the how plus it rolled side, down though you get to go to the film festival and i will you don't have to worry about doing notes because basically i immediately you know after the day's work is over run run not walk but run to the sif cinema egyptian and for seven days uh there's just old vintage noir it's the noir city film festival I highly recommend it. Uh, Eddie Muller, the czar of noir and the Noir City Film Foundation that rescues old films that are in danger, noir films in danger of being lost. Uh, he puts it on in San Francisco where they're based every year, but he also comes up generously giving his time here in Seattle to SIF. That's and awesome. this year it's international noir. So like Japanese gangster films. What? Yeah, you should come. It'll I be fun. I should come yeah, uh, that sounds fun. Uh, there's a 1937 or 38 film with Ingrid Bergman in Swe- Swedish film with Ingrid Bergman as a facially scarred mob boss. The fuck? Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, I don't know. I just report the news. I don't that make it. Sounds like so much fun. Oh, it's really. It should be really cool. Yeah, and this year it's like recovered noirs from Argentina, from West Germany. Like there's Nazis. Like it's gonna be cool. I mean, anytime there's Nazis. It's it's not cool. Yeah, no. But but yeah, it should be a really, it sounds like a great year for it. Yeah, that sounds neat. That so that'll like be starting on Valentine's Day. Oh. I'll be doing that. The day of commercial. Oh, yeah, no, this is great. It's going to be me sitting in the dark with, with my loved ones, because mm-hmm. Will and then several of our other friends also go, uh, drinking canned wine and eating popcorn and watching immaculately dressed people with giant shoulder pads from the 1940s and 50s lie cheat and steal it's gonna be great that is how you should spend valentine's yeah. day yeah yeah a little yeah. murder mm. all right well tell us uh, tell our lovely listeners because i know but tell our lovely listeners which story you are bringing them today so you cannot swing a dead corgi these days without hitting a rabid tabloid headline regarding Meghan Markle and Prince Harry and those crazy feud and royals, right? Right. My fave headline so far is from a humor website, and it goes, Local Actress Rescues Man from Hereditary Cult. That sums it up. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think that's that's nice. So I figured I would get zeitgeisty and pick a lurid story of salacious behavior from a peer of the realm back in that craziest of decades of the 1970s. This story, to quote Stefan, has everything. Posh landed gentry, swinging London in the 60s, baby, speedboat racing, baccarat, 
a thrillingly plush mustache, James Bond, 007, a terrible murder, a real true crime terrible murder, and a fugitive on the lam. So everything brought to you by white people. Yeah, pretty much, you know. Uh, This, my old chaps, is the story of Richard John Bingham, the seventh Earl of Lucan, better known as Lord Lucan. Oh, this crazy bastard. I'm oh, so excited. Yeah, this is this is bananas. So, as He's a, Lord Banana Pants. Lord, yeah, but the, since the majority of folks listening to this are Americans, which it's fine. I'm not, not mad. Most I mean, they are peeps. We they are. Yeah, mad. we live here. <laughs> We're all here together now. Most of you all will not have much of a clue about who Lord Lucan is. But if you were a Brit or anybody in Europe in the 1970s, his story was top of the tabloids for most of that decade and beyond. From what I understand, his name has actually become slang. Oh, for... uh, Disappearances. Disappearances. Yeah, this guy was like... You know how, like, the Weekly World News is always telling you where Elvis was after he died? Same kind of situation. There were spottings of this guy everywhere. But why? Why did anybody give a shit? Well, let me let me tell you his, his sordid tale. Before you dive into it, if I am wrong about that fact, uh, about him becoming a slang, somebody please, one of our English listeners, let me know. Hit me up at uh, disturbing emails to g- disturbinginterest at gmail.com. Disturbing gmails at interest.com. Sure. What the fuck? Yeah. At bangersandmash.com. That's sure. right. I wonder if there is a bangersandmash.com. I'm going to look that up later. <laughs> you may not want to. No. That's probably like a sploshing site. That's a thing the Brits are into that I'm like, that's weird. Look it up. Just Google it. I'll wait. No. Just, just yeah. Google it at home. Sploshing. <laughs> not around children. No. No. Uh, so Lord Lucan was the eldest son of George Bingham, the sixth Earl of Lucan, and was born on December 18th, 1934, into an aristocratic family. During the Second World War, he and his three siblings were evacuated from London for their safety, first to the Welsh countryside, and then a year later to Toronto, and finally to Mount Kisco, New York, which is Westchester County. So it's kind of Tony. There's a lot of old, pretty mansions. In order to stay with... Big money. Yeah, big money. Big Big old money. Yeah, old money. Yeah. In order to stay with this multimillionaire friend of the family, Marsha Brady Tucker. I mean, who doesn't want Marcia to Marsha Brady. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. That's right. Yes. But who doesn't want to stay with that multimillionaire friend I of the family? I do. I don't have one, but I'd like to make one. If you're a multimillionaire and you need a house guest, I'm talking Cato Kalen quality. I'm here for you, okay? Just hit me up. Hit me up. Uh, <laughs> evacuate me for my safety during the remodel. So anyway, upon his return to England in 1945 after the war was over, young John suffered a real culture shock from coming from this luxurious, wealthy household in America where he wanted for nothing to the post-war rationing and austerity of his home country. The family's country estate had basically been bombed to bits and their home in London had had all the windows blown out and needed massive repair as many of the homes in that city did after the Blitz. Add to that fact that, despite being from this titled aristocracy, the sixth Earl and his wife were staunch socialists and agnostics, and they lived a much more austere existence than Tucker, a wealthy Christian, did in the U.S. 
prosperity gospel, gotta love it. So this change in circumstance really seemed to just traumatize the hell out of John. And he even suffered from nightmares and sleep disturbances, and he needed to see a psychotherapist. Well, I mean, this does make sense. You take somebody out of the lap of luxury oh, yeah. in New York as they're a developing young person and put them in London after the Blitz. Yeah, they're going to have some fucking adjustment issues. Absolutely. And again, I don't want to excuse anybody's shit-ass behavior later in life, but at least let's get a framework for understanding why somebody might do the shit somebody does. Well, I mean, if we look at the entire picture, as disturbing as some of those pictures in history might be, if we look at the entire picture, we can understand it better. Yeah. Why, why does somebody do something, right? So he eventually was, you know, got back to kind of normal and even keel and was enrolled at Eton College, which for our American listeners is the, extre- is the equivalent of an extremely old, respected, posh as fuck boarding school. Side note, just a little semantic history here. What we call public school in America is pretty much the exact opposite of what public school in the UK means. So for us... It's a state-funded, non-boarding, usually, K-12 through institution of learning that's free and open to all kids in the United States. For the land of Boris Johnson, a public school is generally taken to mean a fee-paying private school, often a boarding school. The, the confusing reason that they are called public schools, and I wanted to look this up because I'm like, what the fuck? Why, why are we playing opposite day? Yeah, why is this how, bizarre world? That lost how did that work? Well, I found that out. So the reason they're called public schools, when frankly they appear to be anything but to us, is that the original seven institutions that were given independence from the direct control of the crown, church, or government were given that independence via the Public Schools Act of 1868. So see, y'all learned something vaguely useful, grammatical, and non-murder or horror related today. So well done, you all. You can feel good about listening to the show, and we'll go back to the awful now. It was your actual learning component of the program. I feel educated. Excellent. Excellent. So young John, not yet an earl, still in his larval form. Fun fact. Do you know what they call uh, the crossing guard ladies in England? Well, I know it's a zebra crossing. But the, they are called the lolly ladies. The lo- oh, because they have that little paddle that's like, stop, stop. Yes, yeah. and it looks like a lollipop. I asked a friend of mine who is from England if they actually carry lollipops in their pockets for the kids. And she said... Because to me, that's what you should do if your nickname is the Lolly Lady. It makes sense, right? It's like not a public service uh, salary. (laughs) Or do they? They looked at me and almost horrified and said, why would they give that much sugar to children? True. And why would children take candy from a a stranger, even a public servant? Mm -hmm. I don't even trust my dentist. I was a kid like, "Mm, he's trying to get me back here with cavities. Fuck that, dude. So... Anyway, young John, not, this is before he's become an earl, he's still a young guy. Not little. Not little. Young, young John, in his larval form. Little John, different guy. Yeah. He was a, oodalotti, oodalotti, golly, what a day. Yes. Yes. No, not that. Totally different young John from England. Totally different. Uh, There's another one who's a rapper too, but let's. Oh, little John. Yeah. Yeah. Do, 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 do. Yeah, no, that's not. (laughs) Um, So he was not a top academic performer at Eton. But he was developing a skill that would pretty much dominate most of his adult life. Would you like to guess what that was? Table tennis? Badminton? Quidditch? Nah. Ladies? 
gambling. Oh, oh yes. yeah. Ah, uh, that gift that keeps on giving. Yep. So little Johnny was supplementing his allowance by junior bookmaking amongst his peers, and he'd regularly sneak off campus, play a little hooky, and go to the horse races and play some bets. After graduation from Eton, he joined the National Service and became a second lieutenant in the Coldstream Guards, as his father had done before him. He was stationed in Crefield, West Germany, where he took up poker as his favorite extracurricular non-soldiering activity when he so, wasn't Coldstream guarding <laughs> things. Yes. And after his year of national service was up in 1954, Lucan joined a merchant bank in London called William Brandt Sons & Co., with an annual salary of 500 pounds, which, if Google is to be believed, was roughly the equivalent of making about 125 grand a year. So That's a pretty healthy salary. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what you'd expect, right? Yeah. Banker money, landed gentry, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, old boy network, sure. So, you know, he's doing pretty nicely for himself through the equivalent of, you know, uh, of peerage and things like that. Uh, but he was hardly Richard Branson, right? Now, as we've seen from his earlier childhood, old Johnny me lad had a real taste for the finer things and for hanging out with the movers and shakers, which, you know, for that kind of salary, he can't quite do. So he took up with a rich stockbroker named Stephen Raphael around 1960, and the two of them became fast friends over the poker table and backgammon board. They I would need a stockbroker friend. You do. I do. I need more rich friends. I got none. So I really if don't. You, if you end up with that multimillionaire friend. Oh, yeah, that wants me to Kato Kalen for him? their stockbroker friend, because that's what I need. Will do, will do. All right. I do know someone that's a mortgage banker, but it's at a credit union. So kind of like a communist mortgage banker, so no. Sorry. That does not help me in my capital. No, it really dreams. doesn't. That's the best I got, though. Sorry. All right. So these guys would holiday together, holiday, see I'm going full Britain here, in the Bahamas and generally do groovy jet set, yeah baby type stuff together because it's the swing in 60s, right? And it was through this association that Lucan got introduced to John Aspinall and his Claremont Gaming Club. Oh. So let me, let me just take a little sidestep here and introduce you to one of the important dramatist personae of this sordid tale. Mr. John Victor Aspinall, or Aspers, to his friends. That's a great nickname. Aspers! Aspers. Yes. So this dude's introductory line in Wikipedia is maybe one of my absolute favorite, bizarre, like, job title claim to fames ever. He was an English zoo owner and gambling club host. I now have new life goals. An I English zoo owner and gambling club host. Host. Yeah, and that's completely accurate. Wow. That's 100% accurate. Yeah. Wow. I mean, this this cat was wild. He really was. And also kind of awful. Like, good in some ways, not really great in others. Like like many of us. But really, he but was... with money, so it was yeah. amped up. <laughs> right. Like, he was committed to what he was doing. Like, think about that. That's the thing that if you are a rich person... You can fucking commit to your your worst, craziest ideas in a way that us hoi polloi cannot. Oh, my God. I would be a professional artist. It would be terrible for the world. Oh, no. You don't. Well, if like, I was rich like that. OK, oh, I, yeah. I'm poor and I'm a professional artist and that's why I'm poor. So it but would be very good. I'm I'm adequate and I'm I'm good at being like, ah, it's a thing you like. Zeitgeist. Eh, yeah. So 
But yeah, I mean, there's, I would do bizarre things. I would come up with like a, I would totally go Mojo Nixon and go uh, water slide, go-kart tracks running through the middle of the loop-to-loop water slides, kind of, I would hire a rat butler for Bill and Ted. <laughs> I would. I would hire a rat butler to bring them Cheez-Its on a silver salver. Rat butler. That's what I would do. But back to Asper's. Um, so he made his money and fame as a bookmaker initially, skirting the British laws at that time by hosting private gaming parties and targeting rich people by sending out fancy embossed invitations to these little soirees. Well, I mean, get a good invitation. Right. Who's going to turn that down? Also, that's who you should target. They have the money. You don't target, you know, Bert the chimney sweep from Mary Poppins. He ain't got shit. True. He'll pay you in penguins, dancing penguins. You know, like you want you want a rich buttons, bastard. Buttons. You get button clothing. Sure. That's what yeah. you Oh, get. you get pearly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want people that have actual pearls, not pearly kings and queens. Yes. yes precisely. So smart. I mean, that's pretty smart. And he would rent out these fancy upper class London flats and houses and just use them a few times before he'd move on to the next place. He had his mum, Lady Mary Osborne, pay off the Metropolitan Police so they wouldn't raid these clubs. And uh, he would also chemend de fer, or shemmy, which we also would know, we know as Baccarat, was their house game because it had a pretty solid return on the investment toward the house. And then eventually one night, Lady Mary forgot to pass on a fat envelope of cash to the coppers, and the gambling den got raided. Oh, no. Yeah. And Aspinall, Lady Mary, and their business partner, John Burke, ended up in court. However, they ended up winning the day, and the decision led to a big change in British gambling laws, which effectively won them that court battle, but lost Aspinall, his previous business model, in the process. So what you're telling me is because a couple of rich people got busted with titles, they ended up changing the law to favor them? Dude, that's how that works. All right. That's how it works. I'm, I'm glad yeah. something's consistent. Yes. So in 1962, Aspinall founded the Claremont Club in swinging London's Mayfair neighborhood. So Mayfair is essentially the Beverly Hills of London. It's one of the wealthiest enclaves in the whole goddamn world. And thus, so? yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. it's really rich. It's uh, one of the, like, stuff costs crazy money to live there. Like, it's the toniest of the Tonys. And especially, in, again, 60s swing in London, mm-hmm. super, super cool. And he basically turned it into the perfect place for a high-stakes gambling den. I mean, what are all these poshy fuckos going to do with all their hard-inherited wealth? Wasted on the poor and downtrodden? Psh, those jerks just do lame stuff like buy food and shelter and medicine with it. Nobody wants that. Yeah, they're definitely not going to do anything cool like hire a rat butler. Right? That's why you give me the money, Rat Butler. Rat Butler. Call me, wealthy stockbroker, Rat Butler. Rat Butler. So, yeah, I also mentioned that Aspinall, in addition to being the god emperor of bookies, was also a private zoo owner. Yeah. I'm so here for this. And I'm not talking like he's a crazy cat lady or like me. He's got, you know, rats in a giant shark diving cage looking thing in his living room. No, he was an actual... Like exotic animal private to private zoo owners. So I've got a story that relates to a private zoo. There is this guy 
in Arkansas that has his own private zoo like this. Because you can do that in Arkansas. Yeah, apparently you can. My dad uh, did some work on his property. And, oh, yeah, you could see his herd of zebras from the road. Of course but apparently you when you went back into it, that's when you started getting into, like, the big cat enclosures and stuff like that. I both want and do not want big cat enclosures as part of my lifestyle. You know, they have been part of mine way too many times because of Arkansas and their laws there. <laughs> oh, Arkansas. Oh, Arkansas. Yeah, I don't have room for a big cat enclosure. Or do I? Uh, let me let me explain, or do I? So while Aspinall was a student at Oxford, apparently he got really greatly moved by this book, Nada the Lily, by H. Ryder Haggard, which was a fictional tale of a Zulu prince who lived with a group of wild animals. And it inspired this white dude in London so much, in fact, that in 1956, after he had moved into an apartment... With his first wife, that's why he's his first wife, that's why she left him, I betcha, Aspinall built a back garden shed on the property in which he housed a capuchin monkey, a nine-week-old tiger cub, and not one but two Himalayan brown bears in a garden shed in the back garden. How did they not eat the monkey? I, I mean... I, that's all the information I have on this. I didn't so dig deeper. You're telling me this dude got inspired by the Jungle Book and went all, like, terrible cruelty to poor fucking animals. Hey, I mean, you could literally buy uh, a chimpanzee at Woolworths back in the day. I mean, think about, like, we didn't have uh, an intelligence and awareness and things. You could go to a department store and buy a fucking tiger. That's true. There's a yeah. great book out there called You Belong in a Zoo that uh, goes through, one, some funny fucking stories. It's by Peter Presantes, the guy who came up with the method for sexing crocodilians. Uh, you know, he can do that. I'll leave that all to him. Anyway, it goes over the history I... of animal, animal protection pretty well. It's really a fascinating book. Well, there kind of wasn't any, no. I think, at this time no, in history. So you could just do this, and everybody was like, Cool, cool. There's no law against it because we're assholes. A picture of a monkey in the Woolworths catalog. Can we find that? Can somebody send that? Maybe. I just want to see it. So fortunately for these animals and the neighborhood, later that year, that very year, before neighborhood pets and children started to go missing, Aspinall used the proceeds from his various illicit gambling endeavors to purchase a country estate near Canterbury in Kent which he then set up as a private animal park called Howlett's Zoo. And then in 1973, because his collection of exotic pet friends had grown so much, he purchased a second estate in Kent, which became Point Port Lymphney Zoo. And both zoos are now open to the public, and uh, they're known for being a touch unorthodox as they encourage a strong, close, personal relationship between the animals and they're human custodians. And there's not that same kind of strong stress on keeping the animals as wild as possible as we have in most modern public zoos. So the, these zoos are still operating and they're still bizarre as fuck. Correct. But they're actually uh, not terrible from what I've read. 
Steve Irwin, the late lamented crocodile hunter and uh, golden god, as far as I'm concerned, like I literally cried like a like a deep sobbing baby when Steve Irwin died. Yeah, it was, he's a hero, it was big a sad, damn hero. Sad moment. Um, but when he visited Howlett's in 2004, he was very impressed with their gorilla program in particular, which houses some of the largest groups of Western lowland gorillas in captivity outside of Africa. Damn. So they are, and they have a captive elephant breeding program to, uh, I mean, again, what happens to the elephant? I don't, you know, I like to hope that they go and repopulate in the wild, but I don't know. But they do seem to be uh, following decent animal husbandry practices today. Uh, they're certainly not a garden shed in someone's apartment complex in the middle of London. God, so can you imagine that legacy? We came from a garden shed right? in the back of an apartment in London. Can you imagine scooping? Like, can you imagine Ew. being the bin man and having to deal with that? Ew. Yeah, no. Uh, and there is a documentary, which uh, I did watch and is part of this whole thing, called Lord Lucan, My Husband, The Truth, where you can see home video footage of Lucan and others basically just like wrestling with monkeys and tiger cubs and shit like that, like you do. You know, that seems normal. And I will say again, rich people are fucking weird, but at the same time, if I had the cash on hand, rap butler, you know, rap butler. Seriously, like just Cheez-Its on a silver silver salver, Bill and Ted. They go, and they'd be like, oh, good, my lord, some more Cheez-Its. It would, they, would, they would love that. See, and here I am thinking that if I had that kind of money, we would have disturbing travels. We, oh, would, God, could we get a blimp and just travel the world in a blimp? The disturbing blimp? Uh, no, that fire and death. Fire and oh death. no, the new ones are quite. There's not. They're not the same technology. I've been in a blimp. Oh okay. Yeah, then I've been yes. in a zeppelin. It's yes, been great. We can. Yeah. That's what Ask we Will do. about it. Will, as a German, like this is his ultimate form of of transit, and uh, it was a life goal for him to go on an actual like zeppelin, and we did, and it was terrifying and also cool. That is amazing. Yeah. One of my life goals is to drive around in a live-action Mario Kart in downtown Tokyo, and guess what? I'm going to fucking do it. Nice! Nice! I was like, if you want to drive around in one of those little Shriner cars, I might be able to help you with that. Wait, what? (laughs) Yeah, Barry. Did I tell you Barry's a Shriner? He can hook me up with one of the little cars. He might be able to hook you up with the Zemzem Temple. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Don't tease me like this. Okay, I'll talk to him. I'll talk to him. Yeah. Shriner. Of course my dad's a Shriner. Of course he is. Yeah. Dreams do come true. Oh, God. <laughs> but unfortunately, unlike Aspinall, I would not also later in life go on into populist conservative politics and bellow anti-Semitic bullshit on air just to get a rise out of people. But I guess, you know, again, that's kind of a popular if baffling move for, you know, attention-starved shitheads who love the limelight, <clears throat> Donald Trump. Uh, you know, so that's a thing. Yeah. But back to our main character, Lord Lucan. Uh, and it, believe me, Aspinall does come into the rest of the story, and there's a great little coda to this that is fantastic with with the zoo oh, yes, in mind. It is. Yes, it is. It really is. So Lucan got really heavily into gambling and playing games like backgammon and bridge for really high stakes. You know, because that's smart when you have no money. Right. And despite his nickname of Lucky Lucan, his fortunes were really upsy-downsy, as they are if you're a gambler. He'd twice lost the majority of the money that he received from his annual family trusts and bank salary, sometimes having to turn to family members to pay off his debts. 
He left his job at the bank around 1960 after raking in 26,000 pounds on a game of chemin de fer. He traveled to all the groovy rich spots around the globe and spent the majority of his money on a powerboat, which he promptly sank during its first big race. Because that's what That's a wise investment. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Lucan and his crew survived, but of course this did not stop his profligate ra- ways at all. And then in 1963, he met Veronica Duncan, who would become his wife. So Veronica worked as a secretary and part-time model, and because I think that's what everybody did in this. If you were if blonde you were and female, skinny, yes, and uh, you know, in the 1960s, you had at least a little bit of twiggy happening in your life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and secretary. Yes. Yes. So secretary Twiggy. Uh, and unless she, you were married and pregnant and barefoot in the kitchen which you should probably be by the time you're 22 23 yeah mm-hmm. or your expiration date's coming up which we'll get into uh but she worked as a secretary and a part-time model and she got her introduction into london high society when her sister with whom she shared a london flat married the welsh wealthy posh fellow william shand kid who was the half brother of the princess diana's stepfather Okay. So everybody knows everybody. It's a small town kind of situation when it comes to the upper crust, right? I'm here for it. Yes. And if you're interested in this story further, again, I would totally recommend that uh, Lord Lucan, My Husband, My Truth, which was an interview program that uh, Veronica did with ITV a few years ago. It's really good. It's and, worth the watch. Yes. And it was filmed just months before her death at the age of 80. So, was it? Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, it, was, it came out in, like, 2016 or something like that, 2017. Um, and then their wedding on November 20th, 1963, was rather sparsely attended on both sides, with just Princess Alice as the only real royalty at the event, since one of her ladies-in-waiting had been a relative of Lord Lucan. Like the fact that you have ladies-in-waiting and it's the 20th century, the fuck. All right, fine. But whatever. I don't know how this works. Uh, and rat Vic- Butler, you would get a man in waiting for your rats. I okay, that's yeah. If if I I won't, I don't want a lady in waiting. I want a rat butler. I will. Uh, yeah, that's more useful to me. I don't have like corset stays or lacings that have to be collars that I have to be stitched into. Well, I don't think that's what ladies in waiting do nowadays. I, I think they're more like I don't know personal assistants. Okay, you can throw your phone at them. Well, yeah. I don't think that's legal. <laughs> Fine. Then I don't want to be fancy. I don't want to be a supermodel if I can't throw a phone at someone. God. I mean, you can, but it's just going to end up on TMZ. Okay. And your porn video gets leaked. Yeah. Then people are like, she really is into Hobbit porn. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I am. Just reading it, not no LARPing. Uh, But anyway, back to back to their, you know, the the whirlwind romance uh, of uh, Lord Lucan and poor Veronica. Or Victoria, sorry. I keep calling her Veronica. No, her name is Veronica. I keep calling her Victoria. There's just a lot of V's in this. So, well, and there, to be fair, there are a lot of Victorias in England. Oh, God, there are. So Veronica describes the marriage as rather cold and quotes her husband as saying that essentially that's the point of marriage, that you don't have to talk to the person once you got that ring on their finger. However, how many of you really think about passion and claimed romance when you think of the British? Uh, yeah, they're not. Uh, Shakespeare and love, uh, no, no. That Gwyneth, ugh. Anyway, wasn't, even from the beginning, it wasn't, 
you know, a, a very cozy, affectionate, kind of loving marriage, it doesn't sound like. Uh, and she also felt that there was enormous pressure on her to produce a male heir, which she eventually did. And she was talking about that her real reasoning behind getting married to him was that at the ripe old age of 26, you know, she was kind of old product. fruit on the vine. Correct. So she kind of thought, what the hell? This is my shot. I'm going to take it. And At least I'll get a pretty cool title out of it. Right. You know, maybe a nice Mayfair estate, whatever. Yeah. And she did eventually produce that very important male heir. Uh, the couple also had a daughter, Francis, in 1964, followed by that super important son, George, in 1967, and then another daughter, Camilla, to whom it sounds like Veronica was the closest in 1970. Meanwhile, Lucan's father, the sixth Earl, died in January of 1964, passing on all of his titles, plus his inheritance and all oh of that Lord. sort of thing, of about 2,500 pounds, which, as I'm sure you can guess... He burnt through in, what, a year? A little longer than that, but he did not... As we all totally knew and suspected, invest it wisely and be a good steward for it. No, he did not. What happened to his stockbroker friend? Uh, you know, these guys kind of float in and out. Yeah. So after purchasing a home at 46 Lower Belgrave Street in the affluent Belgravia neighborhood in London, which, which was all kitted out in house beautiful style by Veronica, Lucan proceeded to gamble every red tuppence of all that goddamn money away, as we all knew he would. And not only did Lucan like to waste his money on cards and ponies and speedboat racing and shit. And women. Uh, yeah, he did a little bit. But um, mostly, he liked to keep up appearances. He loved spending money like water on the trappings of high society. He would buy fancy racing cars like, like an Aston Martin. He would hire private planes to take him and his buds to the races. Okay, I'm not saying he's all about the Aston Martin right there. Okay with that? Yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. He'd vacation in Monte Carlo and the Alps and Venice and all over the world where rich folks like to hang out. Like, he didn't go to Myrtle Beach or nothing. He yeah. went to the nice places. His suits were all bespoke Savile Row, and he cut a really dashing figure with his epic plush mustache and super chiseled jaw. I mean, he kind of looks like a super um, Englishy kind of Freddie Mercury-looking dude. That mustache. Oh, it's just, it's Tom of Finland porn stash glory is what it is. It should have a title of its own. I just want to, like, like run my feet through it like a plush carpet. It was amazing. It's like a shag carpet for your upper lip. It's, it, yeah, it's, mwah, mwah. And in fact, he even turned down the role, the offer of a screen test for the role of James frickin' Bond what? from film producer Albert R. Broccoli since he fit that 007 image so nicely. Yeah. And he was like, I can't do it. It's like, I I'm am. good. I don't act. Uh, yeah. I, I live the life. I don't have to pretend to. Correct. Yes. But, of course, behind the fancy and successful facade, things were not so rosy at home. Lucan and Veronica's marriage had gotten, unsurprisingly, kind of rocky. She felt very neglected by him, and following the births of her second and third ch children, she battled postpartum depression, which was not nearly as well understood or accepted to uh, you know, as it was back in that day as it is today. That's the truth. 
1971, Lucan took Veronica to a private psychiatric ward in Hampstead, but she bolted and refused to be committed by him. She did agree to home visits from a psychiatrist and to taking some antidepressant drugs. Which, as we all know, based off of past stories on this show alone, what a good idea that really was not being committed during oh, that period for of time sure. in England. Yeah, no. She was, you know, she was a smart lady. So in the aforementioned documentary that I talked about where she speaks about her life, Victoria relates that at one point during this period, Lucan used a crop, which he had blunted on one end with sticking plaster, to whip her on the bottom, like lashes on the bottom, as part of his own idea of what kind of therapy might snap her out of her depression. Like a good beaten. That'll, that'll fix it. That'll get that serotonin popping. Side note, since we're just going to get salacious here, when the interviewer uh, asked her about whether this might have been arousing to him in like an S&M sort of way, she said that she thought it might, as they had intercourse right after, despite these wounds and bruises on her ass. Nice yeah. fella, Lucan. Nice. That's a you're a sweet fella. Yeah, he was a total sadist. Yeah. And do, dear listener, make a note of the fact that a sticking plaster was used on the crop. Now again, for American listeners, a sticking plaster is a band-aid or like a kind of gauze sticky bandage wrap. Sticking plaster will come up again as our story gets weirder and darker. This is like this is Chekhov's sticking plaster, so look for it in the final act. Despite the antidepressants and helpful S&M beatings, things did not, in fact, go back to being hunky-dory in the household. Well, I know whenever I feel down, I ask Mr. Mao to Just break beat out the, the shit out of me. Oh, yeah, just... Bring out me. a box of Band-Aids and have at it. Yeah, no, I don't... I don't believe that it... I believe that, in fact, is medically contraindicated for uh for wellness but whoever invented the bandage tom bandage is out there going that's not what it was meant for right but yeah things didn't go back to being just peaches and cream at casa lucan and he ended up moving out of the family home just after christmas in 1972 a bitter child custody battle then ensued with lucan essentially stalking uh, around their Belgravia home, and also hiring private investigators to help gather evidence that Veronica was mentally ill and unfit to parent. He also hounded numerous doctors and psychologists to testify on his behalf, despite all of them informing him that his wife had not, in fact, gone mad, but was suffering from depression and anxiety that she was taking treatment for. I mean, hell, had this whole thing gone down in Regency days, how many of you want to bet that Veronica would have ended up locked up in the goddamn attic just waiting for her shot at burning the fucking house down? Yep. Right? Yep. Veronica was so disturbed by her estranged husband's behavior that she even confided, confided in her nanny at the time that she feared he might kill her. And seriously... Who the fuck wants a lecherous gambler who jet sets all around the world and clearly has no sense of responsibility to raise children? Uh, probably the patriarchy, but yeah, sure. Patriarchy, fucking patriarchy. And this same nanny that she confided in as being, that, that Veronica said she was really afraid of her husband to, was later cornered by Lucan and a pair of private detectives that he'd hired while she was taking the children for a walk in the park 
and they essentially bullied her into turning the children over to Lucan after he claimed that they'd been made wards of the court. Veronica applied for full custody in light of this kind of behavior, and a court date was set for three months after this event. During this time, Veronica even checked herself in to the prior clinic for a full psychological assessment and workup to prove that she was a fit, safe parent. The doctors agreed that while she still needed some regular support for her anxiety and depression, and frankly, don't we fucking all, right? she was by no means mentally ill or dangerous. At the hearing, the judge instead made Lucan defend his creepy stalker behavior toward his wife and kids and ended up awarding Veronica full custody with visitation with their father every other weekend. Wasn't it supervised visitation? I just said visitation. Okay. So, but yeah, I I assume he would have been a flight risk of taking the kids and running with them. So being a giant raging overprivileged dickhead, Lucan then resorted to withholding much of the money he was required to give as child support. He would stop payment on the nanny service that Veronica was required by the court to have for the children. Or he would delay payment on the grocery account or for the milkman. And he would record their phone conversations on a little Sony tape recorder. He would also harass or generally creep out a lot of the nannies, so it was hard for Veronica to keep them around. And at the same time, Lucan's financial state was dire. The court costs alone drained his account for around 20,000 pounds, and he was constantly asking wealthier friends and relations for loans, most of them, which most of them wisely declined to give him, knowing he's a bad bet. His drinking and smoking were becoming heavy, and his gambling was completely out of control. It's estimated that just between September and October of 1974 alone, Lucan had racked up debts of over 50,000 pounds. Holy cow. Right? And then, one day in late October, the fog seemed to lift, and suddenly Lucan was in better spirits and seemed like he was sort of getting his shit together. And then on November 7th, remember, remember, the 7th of November, he called his solicitor, that's a lawyer for the Yankees, in the morning, which was a rare occurrence for a man who rarely rose before the noon hour. Can you, and, seriously, imagine that life. You don't get up before noon. I would like that life. I'm kind of nocturnal. I'm cool with it. He then failed to make a lunch date with a couple of friends at 1 p.m., as well as missing a 3 p.m. date with a young lady that he'd made the previous day. Then at 4 p.m., he called over at a pharmacist at a pharmacy near his wife's home to ask the druggist to identify a small capsule which turned out to be an antidepressant called Limbitrol 5, although he never said where he'd obtained it. Then, a friend, literary agent Michael Hicks Beach, paid a call at Lucan's flat at approximately 6.30 to discuss an article on gambling that Lucan was writing for an Oxford University magazine. Lucan then drove the agent home around 8 p.m., but interestingly, not in his usual Mercedes-Benz, but in a scruffy old dark Ford, likely the Ford Corsair, that he had borrowed from his friend Michael Sloop several weeks earlier. When Lucan then failed to show up at the Claremont at 11 p.m., as he'd planned with friends, the friend that he was meeting there called his phone, but there was no answer. So, not a wildly unusual day, but the night was about to get really fucking awful. All I keep on thinking is, why would anyone let him borrow their car? I would not let him borrow, like, used Tupperware that still smelled like spaghetti. He can't have shit. Nope. Nope. So, 
here's where I need to introduce yet another cast member, Sandra Rivett, the current nanny to the Lucan children. So by all accounts, she was a perfectly nice person who was quite liked by her charges and by Victoria, her employer. She'd also herself dealt with depression as a very young woman, having had a stay in a mental hospital after a bad breakup. She also had a bad series of relationships, including a failed engagement that resulted in her having to give her child up to her parents for adoption because she couldn't afford to raise him on her own, and then another marriage that had ended in divorce in May of 1974. And that husband kind of sounded, I don't want to say he was an abuser, but he sounded kind of creepy, uh, you know, possessy, like it wasn't great. And shortly after this, uh, in like the summer of 1974, it she went to work for the Lucans. Boy, she's just had a run of bad luck. There. Yeah, this this yeah. she has not had her life wasn't was not great. You know, and like will not continue. It to will be, not. It no. will not. Things will not improve. Sadly for Sandra, who does not deserve what's about to come next. So on the night of November seventh, nineteen seventy four, which Sandra ironically would normally have had as her evening off but she'd switched it kind of last minute. She last spoke to her boyfriend, John Hankins, who she normally went out with on Thursday nights, but since switching her day, she'd seen him the night before. She talked to him on the telephone around 8 p.m. And then after putting the youngest two children to bed, she called in on Veronica, who was watching telly with her oldest daughter, to ask if she'd like a cup of tea, and then headed down to the basement-level kitchen to make one. And just as she entered the room, an assailant leapt from the shadows and bashed her head in with a lead pipe whose grip had been wrapped with sticking plaster to make it easier to hold on to. The murderer then proceeded to stuff Sandra's lifeless, bleeding body into a mail sack to conceal her, I guess? Why the hell a mail sack? First off, where do you even get one? Uh, Approach a mail cart and take off running? I I don't I don't know. Yeah, this is a this is a weird like baffling part. I mean, it's all somebody making weird ass decisions. So uh. I mean, decisions were made, and I'm wondering about the mail sack. The rest is just you're a fucking nut. Yeah, this guy's not a master criminal. This no, guy is no. is in a bad mental place and making terrible life choices for a while. Yeah, oh, for quite his whole damn life, really. So meanwhile, Victoria's upstairs wondering what's taking Sandra so long to return with the tea. Leaving her daughter upstairs, Veronica goes down to check on Sandra, and as she's calling down the stairs for the nanny, she's also hit several times on the head by the same assailant from behind. Uh, She screamed, and a tussle ensued in which the attacker, whose face at that time was in the dark, told her to shut up in a voice that Veronica recognized as her husband's. The assailant had her down on the carpet, choking her and she was able to grab him in the crown jewels and just squeeze those balls for her literal life squeeze him good for her right you go girl absolutely so he let her go and she then demanded to know where sandra was after some hemming and hawing lucan then admitted that he killed her the terrified lady lucan told him that she would help him escape as a means to buy some time and figure out how to get herself and her children out of the house Lucan then went upstairs, told his eldest daughter to go to bed. Now, this part's a little iffy. He might have done that, or he might have sent her upstairs to tell the daughter 
to go to bed. The daughter later testified that her mother told her that, but that she heard her father's voice in the house. So it's, I don't know. And some of Lady Lucan, again, she's got multiple head trauma. Like, yeah. So, and when you're that scared, you remember things differently. Yeah. But basically, one parent told the eldest child to go to bed, and then Lucan proceeded to go into their bedroom where he laid towels down on the bed to avoid getting Veronica's blood on the cover and instructed her to lie down and asked if she had any barbiturates or sleeping pills. Because, I don't know, he was maybe going to try to drug her and kill her that way. I don't know. Uh, he then went into the bathroom to get those self-same sleeping pills to drug Veronica with and to get a wet towel to clean his own bloodied face and hands off. Realizing that he could not hear her with the tap running, Veronica leapt out of bed, ran downstairs and out the door and down the, the quiet residential block to the Plumber's Arms pub to get help. So she basically busts in on in this pub, bleeding and screaming, Broken help head. me, help me, he's killed, he's trying to kill me. You know, a typical Tuesday night. Yeah, good night out. Yeah. Cheers. With that note, I have a little, little sip of wine here. Mmm. Cheers indeed. So when the police arrived... Lucan was in the wind by this point, thankfully leaving the children unharmed. He'd called his mother, the Dowager Countess, sometime between 10.30 and 11 p.m., asking her to come collect the children as, quote, a terrible catastrophe had occurred at his wife's house. He claimed that he'd been driving past the house when he saw Veronica fighting with an unknown man in the basement. How, How did he do that? that? Clairvoyance? I X-ray vision. I guess he's actually. Oh, he's Superman. Superman. Cool, cool. Superman. Superman. Oh, very good, very good. Uh, so yes, that's what he claims. He said he had entered the property and found his wife screaming. He then proceeded to drive the borrowed Ford Corsair forty-two miles to his friends, the Maxwell Scotts, home in East Sussex. Meanwhile, the police had broken down the door to the Lucan home and discovered poor Sandra's dead body in the mail sack, one arm sticking out of it horribly. Oh. That's a great image, isn't it? Ugh. Yeah. They also rushed Veronica to the hospital to have her head wounds taken care of. You know what's fucked up is she will always be remembered in that image, yep. too. Yeah, she's the mail yeah. sack. Mail sack nanny. God that damn. sucks. That really sucks. That would be some she shit was a person. that happened to me right there. Yeah, she was a person. She was. Know? But you get sort of turned into a victim, right? Yeah. So the last person on record to have seen Lord Lucan alive, verifiably, was Susan Maxwell Scott. She later told the police when questioned that she'd had no idea what had happened until long after he'd left since she'd not seen any newspapers or television news shows or radio programs since the previous day. And while at the, Ma at the Maxwell Scott's home, Lucan wrote and posted two letters to his brother-in-law, Bill Shand Kidd. And the text of the first letter I'll read. Dear Bill, the most ghastly circumstances arose tonight, which I briefly described to my mother. When I interrupted the fight at Lower Belgrave Street, and the man left Veronica accused me of having hired him. I took her upstairs and sent Frances up to bed, tried to clean her up. She lay doggo for a bit, and when I was in the bathroom, left the house. The circumstantial evidence against me is strong, in that V will say it was all my doing. I will also lie doggo for a bit, but I am only concerned for the children. If you can manage it, I want them to live with you. Coots Trustees, St. Martin's Lane, Mr. Wall, will handle school fees. 
V has demonstrated her hatred for me in the past and would do anything to see me accused. For George and Francis to go through life knowing their father has stood in the dock for attempted murder would be too much. When they are old enough to understand, explain to them the dream of paranoia and look after them. Yours ever, John. The dream of paranoia. Yeah, this is a real cogent missive, isn't I, it? I really like that he's trying to take the children away from her still, still. and yep. give them to somebody else. Right? Anybody but that bitch, right? Oh, fuck men. So fuck that guy. the second letter that he sent concerned the sale of some property. There wasn't anything else but some, you know, buy this, that, there, and the other thing. Lucan also sent a letter to Michael Stoop, from whom he borrowed the Ford Corsair, that said essentially the same thing as it did in the letter to Bill Shand Kid. And the Ford was found the next Sunday, a couple days later, on Norman Road, New Haven, about 16 miles away from the Maxwell Scott's home. In the boot, that's the trunk for our Yankees, the police found another piece of lead pipe covered in surgical tape and a full bottle of vodka. Now, those are the ingredients for a real bad time full of terrible life choices. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. That is that is a recipe nope. for heartbreak right yep. there. And a warrant for Lucan's arrest, along with a full description, went out on the wire, and the nation was suddenly riveted by this upper crust manhunt. Now, I know how much you love yellow journalism, and this was their fucking field day. Oh, my favorite thing in the world. Oh, yeah. Yellow fucking journalism. Right. And boy, the British tabloids, uh, they bow to no one. Oh, yeah. Those They're are, mm-hmm. a cut above all the rest. Like, yep. wow. So Our National Enquirer has nothing Oh, I know. Bat Boy's like, oh, no, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. So a meeting of all Lucan's known cronies at the Claremont became the equivalent of tossing a cow into a river of press piranhas for these tabloids that immediately spun Richie Rich conspiracy theories. They knew where he was and he was hiding them. Even the police felt like what they called the Eaton Mafia was working against them and closing ranks and refusing to talk. The Eaton Mafia. The Eaton Mafia. Even Lady Aspinall, mom of Zoo Crazy, threw petrol on the speculative fire by saying, when asked if she knew the whereabouts of Lucan, the last I heard of him, he was being fed to the tigers at my son's zoo. God bless. I it was the gators. No, it's the tigers. The tigers. Tigers, yes. Oh. So the police, having zero sense of satire or irony, immediately searched the zoo grounds. Of course. Yes. All in all, 14 different country houses and estates were subject to search by the police, all of it turning up nil, nada, nothing. And the investigation itself actually claimed another victim. Dominic Elwes, a close friend of the Lucans, went to see Veronica in hospital and was deeply shocked by both her condition and her comment, who's the mad one now? He took part in an article that was critical of Lucan and was thereafter shunned by his social circle for that and for trying to defend Veronica from the press, who went after her as well, some claiming that she conspired with her husband. And Dominic Elwes was so distraught from this whole loss of social standing and kind of ending up in the the press that he died from suicide in September of 1975. So the official inquest into the death of Sandra Rivett concluded that she'd had indeed been murdered by Lord Lucan, who then became the first member of the House of Lords to be convicted of murder since 1760. 
I mean, if you're going to make a name for yourself. Sure. Got to go big or go home, yeah. right? Murder a nanny. The, fr- the, the last House of Lords murderer murdered a bailiff. So, you know, they're at least keeping it fresh. Sandra Rivett's body was cremated on December 18th, 1974, and her ashes were returned to her family. Lucan's estate was found to be pretty much entirely bankrupt, and eventually George Bingham, Lucan's son, petitioned to have him declared dead, which was granted on February 3rd, 2016. George Very recently. Yeah, and, and they'd done other um, legal stuff to release some of the funds in the estate and so on and so forth, but not until... February 3rd, 2016, was he officially declared dead, and then George was able to inherit his father's titles, and is now the eighth Earl of Lucan. Four years ago. Yes. Four years ago. Four years ago. I mean, technically, he could still be alive. He'd be in his 80s at this point. Mm -hmm. So, uh, unlikely, but you never know. Uh, And Veronica, sadly, developed a dependency on drugs and alcohol, and eventually gave up custody of her children in the early 80s. And then she also died by suicide in September 2017, a few months after her documentary was recorded. She had self-diagnosed herself with Parkinson's disease due to some sleeplessness and, and a hand tremor and decided to end her life rather than live with a suspected illness. She was 80 years old and lived alone, having had no contact with her children for decades. Yeah, it was real sad. The yeah, this entire story. Was whole so thing sad. sucks. It all sucks, you guys. I'm telling you some sucky stuff. So where is the Where's Waldo of Lord Lucan? Well, so this is sort of the this part's sort of the fun part of it, I guess, or at least the lighter side of murder. Terrible. So after Lord Lucan's, as for Lord Lucan's likely fate, Veronica and a lot of other people who knew him well suspect that he also died by suicide fairly soon after the murder, jumping either from a ferry or sinking himself in a speedboat in the English Channel. Initially, this was the view taken by Detective Chief Superintendent Roy Ranson, who was the lead investigator on the case. But later, Ranson changed his views and came to believe that Lucan had actually fled to southern Africa. There were even claims that the two eldest Lucan children were taken to Gabon in the early 1980s so that their father could spy on them from a distance. And this is something that son George Bingham strenuously denies. He says, I've never been there. I don't know who made this up, but that is absolutely false. What do his siblings say? They haven't spoken publicly on it either. Okay. Uh, Veronica Lucan, Lady Lucan, as well dismissed these ideas, saying that her husband was not the sort of Englishman to cope abroad Liking only English things. He also wasn't exactly the type to stay laying low. No, this isn't a guy that, yeah. He was that's good at flashy. He's not good at taking care of himself and keeping shtum. Mm. He is not. But Susan Maxwell Scott felt that perhaps Lucan had indeed been initially spirited out of the country by shadowy underground financiers who had been some of his creditors with the gambling money, and that eventually they decided he was too great a risk too hot a commodity, and they had him killed and buried him in Switzerland. Because sure, why not, Switzerland? Okay. Lucan's sightings poured in from around the world in the years following his disappearance. One likely sighting of him actually turned out, interestingly enough, to be the disgraced British politician John Stonehouse, who had actually for real attempted to fake his own death because he was really an honest-to-God actual spy for the Czechoslovakian government. 
That is awesome. I know. It's like layers of weird, right? And everyone from government agents to bounty hunters claim to have either seen or captured this mystery Earl. But to this date, nobody's come up with any solid evidence to prove what really happened to him one way or another. And he's kind of like the Eurotrash version of Elvis after his death, really. And that is the story of Lord frickin' Lucan. I love it. Oh, my God. It was great. That was a that was a ride, wasn't it? It was. It was oh, I good. say. All Jolly good. Well, on that note, listeners, please remember to like, rate, tell a friend, tell your neighbor, tell your enemy. Tell, tell the Pope. Tell a the confession, pope. if you're that cool. Tell a peer of the realm, preferably not a murdering one, but, you know, a nice well, one. Well, I mean, if they're a murdering one and they're your peer, maybe. Call up Meghan Markle. Tell her. She seems nice. She does. She seems nice. She does. She really Tell does a corgi. Nice. Yeah. A corgi. We like yeah. corgis. Yeah. Tell them. Point is, like, rate, subscribe, tell somebody. Yep. We love you. Hopefully you love us. And on that note, remember, take care of each other. You might be disturbed, but you're not a nanny who's been beaten to death by a sticking plaster-covered iron rod. And you're not alone. Right. Thank you for listening, friends. Remember, if you would like to reach out to us, you can find us on Facebook at the Disturbing Interest Podcast, Twitter at podcast underscore DI, Instagram at DI Podcast. You can find us online at disturbinginterest.com or you can email us at disturbinginterest at gmail.com. Our P.O. Box is 70515 Seattle, Washington 98127. Remember to rate, like, and tell your friends and we'll talk at you soon. Music for Disturbing Interest was brought to us by Chris Martin and Jeff Harvey at Purple Planet Music.